I'm pulling up the discussion points from. All right, we're back. Season two, episode five, number 20 overall. Nolan Axton with Wes Mason and Clay Feldner. Between two sheets, coming at you live from the Minot Curling Club. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm doing good. Yeah, I had a nice Thanksgiving. How about you too? Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, we haven't even caught up. How was your that. Thursday? My Thursday was great. We, we call it Thursday where I'm from. Oh, but you're down here though. Yeah, well, I don't get Monday off, so I ain't going to celebrate Thanksgiving properly. Maybe yeah, you get. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's just All a right. grudge. No, it's, it's like time change, right? You no, know, Nolan, I celebrated both Thanksgivings this year. Yeah, you got to. I even man. hosted the Canadian yeah. one in the U.S. Yeah. See, it's a, it's a, I'm the same way on time change. I came from somewhere without time change, so when it's time to cut back an hour, I go into a full-on rebellion. I hate it. You, all the it. other provinces change time, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just what, not yours. What do we say so, about that? Okay. Clay, how was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> how was your Thanksgiving, Clay? <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good, good. Um, I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, let's just get into it, right? Yeah. We're, we have our, our first real interview here. Um, I uh, stumbled on a gentleman um, in a curling forum who was talking about how his club has transitioned from arena ice to dedicated ice. And uh, he was nice enough to uh, be willing to talk to us on our podcast. So his name is Craig Fisher. Um, we're about to give him a call and talk to him about how curling in Fort Wayne, Indiana goes. So yeah. Clay, you ready? be good. Be good. Be nice. Fine. <laughs> Craig Fisher. Hi, Craig. This Hi. is Wesley with the uh, Between Two Sheets. I've got Nolan and Clay here with me, and uh, we're hoping to get our interview in. How are you doing? Doing well. Let's do it, man. Yeah. Um, okay. So to start off, I think most of our viewers know us. Um, I would just love to hear about you and how you came to curling. Um, so if we could get start with some of your backstory, Craig. Sure. So uh, like most sort of weird things I've done in my life. It's uh, been one of my wife's cockamamie ideas. <laughs> so uh, my wife and I have a, have a son with autism. And uh, during the 06 Olympics, we were watching curling and my wife went online and found that there's a delivery stick you can use. So perhaps our son could participate with us. And she went online and found the closest curling club was two and a half hours away. So she talked me into going and doing this crazy thing. So we drove two and a half hours each Sunday, six Sundays in a row with my sister-in-law, my son, my wife, and a friend of ours, five of us. Yeah. And we had a blast. And my son could do it, and he enjoyed it. Uh, he was 12 years old at the time. So we're did, like, this is awesome. Did you guys all so, curl on the, the same team there? When you started that first year, or were you like mixed into a program and did pickup games? It, it was it was really just you know a learn to curl program. So mm -hmm. uh, you know it was I think it changed each time we went. There were two week learn to curls, so we did three of those, and you know you'd come back. And the first week was sort of more instructional. Second week you did more a bit more gameplay. Uh, so we did that, and honestly I don't recall if we played on the same team or not. I'm sure our son played on the same team as one of us, um, but I don't recall. Yeah, uh, we had a blast. And the following year, uh, you know, that was so it was after the Olympics. So, you know, we went in, you know, March into early April, then their season ended. And then, um, you know, the next season started up and we were excited to do it again. And they said, oh, no, the only opportunity is on Tuesday evenings. And with a 12 year old kid, you can't drive two and a half hours each way yeah. um, on a Tuesday night. So we sort of gave it up. And in 2010, uh, we, you know, my wife again had the idea that we should do something here in town. And in 06, we had tried, but there were only two uh, sheets of ice in the entire town. And, and Fort Wayne is sort of a hockey mad town. So there was no way to get ice. Uh, but in 2010, uh, after the 2010 Olympics, we did some research and found that they had just built a new three sheet, you know, three hockey rink facility in our town. And it hadn't even opened yet. So we called them up and they said, you curlers need to get your act together. I get calls all the time about curling, but that's expensive. And we're like, no, no, no. We just, we're going to form a club. We're going to get all the equipment. They all said we curling need was expensive, curling. huh? 
Yeah, from equipment perspective, right? They were looking at if they had to oh, buy the stones. And oh, he said, yeah, oh, that initial they, cost. for them. Yeah. 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 So we said, no, we're going to buy the stones. We're going to we're going to get everything that's needed. We just need ice time from you and a place to store our equipment. And they said, oh, all right, let's talk. Well, in that and case, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it went from there. That was in March. Uh, late February, early March. Uh, by June, we were curling, um, you know, with uh, starting our Learn to Curls. And by August, we were hosting a 40-team bond spiel. Holy, Holy smokes. So, um, Craig, you know, we're, yikes. we're we're all on the board here at our club, right? And uh, help out with ice yeah. maintenance and keeping the facility going. So I, I personally am really curious about logistics of those early years. You know, like when you started at this hockey rink and it's a new facility, you know, uh, yeah. what, what did your prep look like? Well, how many, how, I've always heard, you know, it's like six hours of work go into an arena club before you can even curl a game on it, right? Because you Zamboni it, then you try to scrape it, um, go yeah. drop your hacks in and stuff. So I, I would really like to know more about logistically how how did you do those early years and then also this 40 team bond spiel too that uh, that's impressive you know I, I think the biggest one we've had here at our five sheet club is a 32 in my tenure so yeah so you know obviously i i got lucky in that one of the guys in our town that i found out about in 06 but i wasn't able to get a hold of in 06 was an elite level curler that had moved down from canada and curled out of St. Paul for a while and, and played in the 05 Olympic trials. Oh, yeah. So, okay. so his name is uh, Dr. Greg Eigner, and he had lots of connections in the curling community. So, you know, with my project management and, you know, expertise and, and business acumen and his curling expertise, uh, combined with my wife, who's an attorney, who helped, uh, you know, in a lot of ways on the legal side of things, um, you know, we had a pretty good team. So, you know, we bought stones from, uh, from Steve's curling supplies and he had a good relationship with Steve. So we got a pretty sweet deal at the time. They were Oakville's old stones. And, uh, we got a bunch of equipment from the curling club in Edina, Minnesota that had just shut down. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, Ken Olson was running that and they lost their ice when they're, when their arena decided that they wanted to dedicate themselves 100% to hockey. So we picked up brooms, scoreboards, broom racks, all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, drove that back. And then, you know, obviously you've got to paint rings in your ice if, if your facility allows you to do that. I know some arenas don't allow that, but ours did allow us to paint, uh, you know, paint rings, etc. Did you have to paint so those got, every uh, week or were you able to leave them in? Um, Nope. We painted it once a year uh, on two rinks uh, of the three so they could bounce us between them. Um, and then, you know, so once that was in place, then the prep each week was, you know, they would do a, a wet cut, then a dry cut with the Zam. And then we would go down, we would sink the hacks. So put the hacks in hot water, a cooler full of hot water, then put them on the ice, rest it, you know, put a curler on top of that or some stones on top of that to force them down a little bit. Do a quick pebble, uh, run the rocks with the rock box. We didn't have a nipper at the outset and then start curling. Now, the only thing is we needed to chill the rocks. We did not have a cooler. Uh, but what we did have is there was a corner of, so the ice sheet for each of these rinks was rectangular, but obviously hockey rinks are not. So there was a corner of this hockey rink, you know, you know the ice pad for the hockey rink that was outside the boards that was ice. So three or four hours before we curled, somebody would go out there. One of our members would go out and move the rocks off of the rock racks onto this little ice pad with some vinyl mesh underneath it and allow the rocks to cool for three or four hours so they didn't melt in when you first put them in the ice yeah i had never thought about that before but yeah we always uh try to make sure our rocks are nice and cool before the first day um i I didn't think yeah if you have to haul them away that you got to pre-cool them yeah yeah so you know nowadays a lot of clubs have chest coolers chest freezers Mm -hmm. that they keep the rocks in uh, we didn't have that option back then, but we did have that nice little ice pad. 
so we could at least get them chilled for a while. And then, and so that's one person going out there and moving a ton and a quarter of stones by hand, uh, which was tiring. And then three or four hours later, we show up and, and do the rest. Now, you know, there was a bar overlooking the ice rinks, which was really great uh, for broom stacking, et cetera. The downside of that was people would show up early, have a drink or two. And when it was time to do the prep, you've got about 20% of the people who are going to play in league helping out everybody else hanging out in the bar. Uh, so much like, you know, even in a dedicated facility, you've got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. I was going to say our, our rule of thumb has always been, it's like 5%, you know, 5% <laughs> of the people do 90% yeah. of the work, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, I feel that. Um, yeah. Do it out there. I, I have, I have also distinctly our, at our club, you know, we have that clubhouse on the second floor, right? Looking down over the ice. And so when I'm out there pebbling and nipping, I always look up into the glass and see everybody sitting there in the rows watching me do the ice. I'm like, you, you could come down and help, you know? Exactly. You can, <laughs> you can come down and help. And then sometimes if I knew them, I would point at them and like gesture and they're like, Oh, what did you need? I'm like, grab a broom, you know, get that broom exactly. and pick up these, these shavings. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. And, and, and that's, you know, arena ice is a challenge. The ice is, uh, is suboptimal. The stones go where they want to go, not where they're supposed to go. And, you know, the times stink. So we started at 9.30 to 11.30 on Monday nights. Ooh. So you play till 11.30, clean up, you get out of there at 11.45, you get home at 12.15 or so. You're still pumped up from the game, so you can't go to sleep. You stare at the ceiling until 2 o'clock, finally fall asleep, and then the alarm goes off at 6 a.m. and you got to get up and leave. So it's tough to keep members. Um, so we struggled. Um like, like most arena clubs. And I, I have a huge, huge respect for anybody that can keep an arena club going for an extended period of time because arena curlers are the most dedicated curlers there are. They'll put up with shitty ice. They'll put up with bad ice times. They'll put up with doing a lot of work just to enjoy the game. So hats off to every arena club out there that's survived. We, we lasted about four years and, and knew we needed to do something different. Uh, what did your I, what did your membership look like at that time? You know, when you started out, you're on uh, one hockey rink. I'm picturing two to three sheets. You know, maybe on that rink, um, and you're curling what uh, one eight end game or two four end games in your two hour time so, slot. Um, so yeah, when we first started, we were about eighty five members, and we had a Monday night slot and a Saturday slot, four sheets. Um, so. You know, we could get 64 people playing in leagues, and then you've, you've got subs, you've got, you know, sometimes teams with a bye, et cetera. Yep. So that first year, we were about 85 members, and year over year, we would go down, and uh, the next Olympic cycle was coming around, and we were down to 24 active curlers, knowing that we would not survive, we would not get enough of a boost from the Olympics, because we wouldn't be able to hold enough learn to curls to get you know, up to a hundred members where we needed to be to, to sustain another four year run. So we, uh, we decided we needed to do something, but, and we'll get to that in a minute, but you asked about the 40 team bond spiel. Yes. Yes. So, so we, uh, as a condition of curling at the facility, they wanted us to run a tournament because they needed, they had a desire to generate revenue for their restaurant and bar. So that was their ask of us. And because we did that, you know, we formed a pretty good relationship with them. They generated a lot of money. We broke even on our bond spiels uh, at best. Uh, but we, so we did it in the summer. We did it in August, right? So you can attract curlers from dedicated clubs more easily because they don't have, uh, they don't have ice. So we ran a, an event in August of each year. First year was 40 teams you know, two months after we started curling, our curlers had played in a, uh, in a four week rookie league. Um, and I don't know, six week rookie league of one hour games. And they had done a learn to curl. So the vast majority of our members had curled eight hours in their life. And then a bunch of them played in this tournament that had a four game guarantee and they curled eight hours in one weekend and they were dying. I remember be barely being able to walk up the steps yeah. in my house. I think about the um, first couple of weeks of curling and I'm always like sore through the hips and, you know, like my triceps right. from sweeping, you know, and doing that in a weekend. 
So your and first first year was 40 teams? 40 right. teams, yeah. So, we, I mean, we started small. Um, our next year was 60 teams on 12 sheets of ice and included... So the first year we kicked off this tournament, we did 40 teams because my ignorance, right? Um, and, and this is sort of an ongoing story with Greg Agner, the experienced curler, and I that he would be like crazy. Why, you know, we can't do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, why can't we? Let's just do it. So I had no idea what a normal number of teams for a bond spiel was. So I was aiming for 48 and felt I failed getting to 40. And, uh, you know, I talked to Hal McGrady, who, uh, who started up Columbus and was involved in, in Coyotes as well. And, you know, he said, he's coming. Hey, love to see you guys have a club, love to come out. How many teams do you have for your bond spiel? I said, 40. He says, 14 teams for your first bond spiel? That's awesome. And I said, no, not 14, 40, 40. And he's like, holy crap, how do you get, how'd that happen? I'm like, I have no idea. I didn't know any better. That's what we're wondering is how in the world did you find 40 teams? Yeah, like what kind of area did you draw from? Was that mostly just like the local Fort Wayne area or did you? Oh, this, this is all over. We had, we had a team from Portland fly in for it. Uh, we had a team from Dallas, Fort Worth, drive up for it. How'd you guys um, advertise? Yeah, now I, what was this yeah, advertising what's... budget? <laughs> uh, you know, combination of uh, Facebook. You know, a curlers love to go to the first bond spiel at a club, right? They love to support new clubs uh, and and love to go to the first. So that that was one thing. Plus, you know, we've got a bunch of clubs that are you know, within three hour drive. So we're about a three hour drive from Chicago, a three hour drive from Detroit, oh, three and a half helps. hour okay. drive from Cleveland. There's a lot more people. Bowling Green, Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit, Kalamazoo had just started a couple of years earlier. Uh, Chicago, Indianapolis. I'm not, I'm not feeling too bad anymore because I think yeah. about us for a three-hour drive, and I'm like, well, there's 100,000 people total in that circle, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you're listing off towns of a million. I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah, we're okay. We can get to, yeah, Winnipeg is, what, four hours Winnipeg's away? Winnipeg's about five hours. China's about four and a half, yeah. And, and yeah. That's yeah. all got a border. They're not as big us. as Chicago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. So yeah. So, so, yeah, we did it at 40... 40 teams. And because we were a brand new club, we're like, crap, we're going to get our asses kicked. So, you know, uh, Greg said, well, you know, they oftentimes they'll do five and under. So we, we did it half five and under half open for our first bond spiel. The second bond spiel, Greg wanted to do a cash spiel. Uh, so we did a cash spiel. Uh, so a five and under an open and a cash spiel. Uh, the third year, so the second year was uh, 60 teams, I believe, on 12 sheets. I may be getting the years mixed up. Um, the third year, we had, uh, you know, five and under, an open, and a cash spiel. The winner of the cash, cash spiel that year uh, was Scott McDonald, who eventually represented Ontario in the Briar. And then the last year, and that so that third year was 48 teams. The last year was only 40 teams. We had a five and under and open, a men's cash spiel and a women's cash spiel. So USA Curling. Now, you know, when we were running the cash spiel, you know, we had Tyler George playing, Chris Plies, Matt Hamilton, uh, you know, people that were uh, on the track to to become, you know, America's top curlers. So, um, so we and actually the first cash spiel was won by Stephen Dropkin and Corey Dropkin. Oh yeah. So Corey, okay. Corey was 14 or so, playing vice for his brother with Tom Howell, uh, Stephen Dropkin, and uh, can't remember who their fourth was offhand. Um, but anyway, some of the you know top level curlers had been to our facility. So so just so I have the order of, of things right, was this still on arena ice or is this still arena ice? Wow. But. It was arena ice, but we ran it in August and the first, and, and the, the arena would bring down one rink during the summer, just due to lack of, you know, uh, yeah. activity. Yep. So they would bring down one rink. And then when we hosted our tournament after the first year, every year we would be the first thing on that rink 
and we would bring in ice guys that we knew from uh, from Ontario. Uh, Greg had curled up in London, Ontario, and the ice guy at his club, the Highland Club in in, in London, Ontario, had done you know had done ice for the Briar and did the you know Ontario Tankard and stuff like that. And he would bring a team of people down, and they would make a, a you know a week of it. They'd play golf and flood and put our ice in, et cetera, and we'd put them up in a hotel, and they wouldn't charge us anything, which was awesome at the time. Um, so we had you know. When we were running the cash field, we had slam quality ice. Yeah, I was going to say so that's a, a nice curling experience, not not rocks yeah. running wherever they want. Yeah, huh? yeah, exactly. Now the, the five and under was playing on the the you know rocks running wherever they want sort of thing. It was they had they spent spent a day on the other rink and did a flood or two, so it was better than the typical arena experience. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't slam quality ice. And then when you got to the playoffs, if you made the playoffs. You got to play on the slam quality ice. Now, the last year we were in our dedicate on our arena facility. USA Curling asked us to run a women's cash field. It was the start of the last year of an Olympic cycle, so it was 2013, August of 2013. Um, and apparently, weird. One of the weird things is that if if you have a cash field and women play on the cash field, the men earn order of merit points, but the women do not. Uh, which is sort of backwards in my mind, right? If women are playing in an event with men, the level is higher, so they should earn points. But the way that stuff runs, they don't. So USA Curling asked us to run a women's cash field, and we said, eh, we don't know that we can uh, fill it. We're happy to run one, but we don't know that we can fill it. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll get it full. So we ran this women's cash deal, and they required all four teams that were vying to become the women's Olympic team. So Cassie Potter's team, um, Erica Brown's team, Allison Pottinger's team, and Courtney George's team all came. They were required to go. Um, Derek Brown was running the high performance program. He called Eve Muirhead and told her to come over. So Eve brought her team over. Uh, they won the bronze medal uh, in the following Olympic year. And then it just so happens that uh, the Chinese teams, Bing Yu Wang and the Chinese B team, were in Blaine practicing. They heard about it. So they came down, and, and they were coached by Mar- Marcel Rock from uh, Randy Furby's team. So we had all these people at our last uh, big summer spiel in uh, August of 2013, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm blown away. Yeah, that's yeah cool. you just that's... you kept listening off names, and we're all looking at each other, just like shaking our heads and mouth open, like, <laughs> "Wow, okay, that's great." Yeah. So, and, sorry, you go. No, no, you go. So we at that point in time, we were already making the transition to dedicated ice. We were, you know, we were looking at. We had picked out a facility, and that weekend, we were actually allowing our people to go through it before we signed the lease to get our to get buy-in from our members but sort of the genesis of it was you know every week greg and i would talk about the challenges of arena ice and you know we know it'll never happen but boy you know it'd be great to have a dedicated facility where we didn't have to do with this and greg always said it's never going to happen and i said don't say that we can probably find a way to make it happen and and you know he was always pessimistic and i was the over ambitious guy and uh you know, our, our membership was going down and down and Greg and I looked at each other and said, look, we're not going to survive as a, an arena club on a long-term basis. We need to do something. We both decided we'd be willing to put a bit of money in and uh, follow the field of dreams model, build it and they will come. Um, so we, uh, it was the warehouse model was pretty new at that point. Portland had done it and Columbus had done it, but they were the only clubs that had sort of, retrofitted an existing warehouse um, using these ice mat systems to fairly cheaply build a dedicated facility. Can you describe that a little bit, the ice mat systems, um, you know, and what this warehouse model is? um, Sure. And that's permanent, right? Semi-permanent with the ice mat model, right? No, not permanent at all. In fact, we moved it. So, um, so the ice mat model is basically, uh, and there's, it's the, you know, ISNS now has a, 
has a similar thing, but as far as we were aware at that time, this was the only one out there that had any experience in the curling world. Uh, but the CalMac ice mat system is really just, you know, a set of PEX uh, tubes hmm. that are connected together. Um, so it comes from a header. So there's a header that feeds in glycol from from the chiller. Uh, and there's, you know, hundreds across four sheets. You've got a few hundred of these hex, uh, hex-like tubes that run down. There's a U bracket at the end, so it turns around and then comes back and then runs to a uh, reverse return and then to a return to go back out to the chiller. And these things are bound together with pieces of plastic that are called chairs, and they come in these big uh, rolls, and you just roll these things out. Okay. I think, I think that's what a, a concrete floor. I, th- I think that's what an outdoor arena here. We have a, a, a group in town that has a little outdoor arena um, and they do like hockey skating on it. Um, they did Crocker curl one year and uh, we did an outdoor curling event on it. I, I, th- I believe that's what they use. Yeah, it's like those plastic mats with almost, the tubing running through it. Almost looks yeah, like they're setting up rebar to pour a concrete yeah, floor. But w- yeah. when I asked about permanent, I, I guess you're using that same system all year though, right? Or almost all year. Yep. Okay. And so, so we bought this system in 2013, installed it at the beginning of 2014 in our three sheet facility. Um, and we used it for five years there. And then we picked it up and moved it 200 yards down to the street to our next dedicated facility, bought some more mats for the fourth sheet. And so we've been running for, uh, almost 10 years in January, it'll be 10 years. We've been running on these mats. Uh, it just goes on top of an existing concrete floor. So like when we left our old facility, we pulled up our mats, we pulled up our insulation and voila, there's the concrete floor that was there before. And we had no security deposit loss or anything like that from our, from our time in the rental. So essentially take an existing concrete floor, build catwalks around the ice pad area, uh, just two by eights with decking on top. Uh, That becomes your catwalk that you walk on around the rink. Uh, The border of the ice pond is, you know, two by eights all around. Then you lay a liner down, you lay some insulation down, some one inch thick foam insulation, a couple inches worth of that, a liner, a little more insulation, maybe another liner, and then you roll these mats out on top of that, and then you flood the water into that. So there's some places that use sand, and and from what I understand, that's a nightmare, and we've never done that. So we literally just pour the water around, you know, around these tubes. Our co-host Nolan is from a sand club in Canada. Yeah, so a little, little two sheet. He's smiling. Yeah. It, sand isn't. It's not fun. It's it's an art form. So yeah. You, you so, spent you spend an entire season, from what I understand, from talking to Columbus, who went to that. Uh, they spend the entire season cleaning up sand all over the club. It finds a way to get everywhere. Yeah. So we've never yeah. done that. <laughs> um, we just pour water around the tubes. Once the water is up above the chairs that are holding those things up, then we paint and uh, lay down our vinyl mesh rings and, you know, a little bit more water on top of that, and we're good to go. So then, so then your, I mean, your condenser, your chilling equipment, then your, your motorized equipment, do you just run piping outside to... Yep. Okay, I was yeah, going to so ask, those have to be outside, right? You can't leave them sitting in there because you'll just be heating up your, your room, but... Yeah, so we run, we've got a train uh, air-cooled chiller, uh, CGAM 52 nominal ton chiller, uh, and we're running glycol through the tubes. Uh, so we just run some piping out through the exterior wall out to the chiller. Gets cooled out there. We fenced in the chiller so nobody steals the copper from it. Put a little barbell <laughs> on. Yeah. Uh, what's uh, the What's the weather like in Fort uh, Fort Wayne over there? How cold do you guys get in the winter when you're you're curling out there? Is it uh, you know above freezing, so below freezing, snow? You know, sunny. It, it snow below freezing. Uh, but interesting story. Uh, when we built our first facility, uh, we had just installed the ice. 
the ice guys from Canada drove away. Jim Hibbert, the guy who, you know, did the installation of the ice masks, he drove away. And then we had three days of minus 20 degree weather. And you were like, I didn't even need this. It would have been fine. Just open the door. Only the chillers are designed, are not designed to run at that temperature and they've got a shut off. Oh, so yeah. our chillers shut off. Yeah. We have a similar and the problem. Ice started melting. We, we, uh, if it gets b- below, actually it's 20 below for us too, is our, our set point. Um, we actually go shut our plant off because um, our building isn't insulated. So we'll let the right. glycol keep circulating, but uh, we'll go shut our ammonia compressor off because all of our ammonia will get sucked up into the chiller. You know, it'll turn to a liquid outside where it's still supposed to be a gas. Um, right. And then the system will crap out, right? Um, so you'll trip out on low pressure. So we have a similar issue and it, it gets too cold, you know, which is always funny. People yeah. are like, oh, it's really cold. And I'm like, well, it's kind of a problem sometimes you know exactly so our shutdown the ice started melting uh our warehouse was sprinkled so we couldn't open the doors because we would freeze the sprinkler pipes and that would be even worse yes Mm. Mm. and the ice started melting from the bottom up and the top down and there's pictures of it in our blog and uh the third day we were finally able to trick the chiller into coming back on and we saved our ice but we ran that whole season with an eerie uh, yellowish greenish glow because it had thinned out the white paint that was above the glycol tubes. Oh, do you guys run a, a painted surface in your warehouse club too? You guys paint, you don't use the vinyl ones? We, we paint, yeah. Is it a, a water-based one that comes in big white bags and you, you mix it and spray it down? Yeah, it's the, it's the Jedi stuff. Yep, yep, yep same thing we use. Yep, yep. yep. Well, that's fun. You, you, we, we we always get a kick out of paint night. It's probably our most hectic work night, I guess, you know, because it's such a production. We we try to get all of them painted in like two hours, you know, with a group of 20 people. So, so, right. is, so but, is this, is the CalMax system, is that a rental or do you buy that? And Buy it. Okay. You buy it. Um, for our, our viewers out there that are looking to get their own arena club going ballpark, what do you, what do you think one of those runs now? If you want to go get like a two sheet club set up, do you, do you have an estimate so on that? Or? I would estimate about 30K per curling sheet for the mats. And then you've got to pay some more for the, for the, for the insulation, the chiller, low E, et cetera. So you're probably looking, you know, at 200K sure. all in for the, just for the ice equipment. And then, you know, your renovation costs on top of that. Sure thing. Yeah. But as I, as I said, completely transferable. We moved everything except some of the insulation that had gotten waterlogged mm-hmm. and the low E ceiling that we run uh, just because it wasn't the right dimensions. We moved everything else over to our new facility. Yeah, I love so that. when we built that facility, you know, we didn't have those costs. Yeah, that 200000 you know, you, you hear that and you go, but then I think no, about I like our... I'm, yeah, I'm I, just thinking like that, that, that makes... Building clubs in new locations, that complete that's a game changer. That yeah. makes oh, yeah. yeah, instead of being a half million starter, you know. Um, what did our, our condenser all said and done? So in two, 2021, we had five feet of snow come in a weekend, and uh, the snow came off of our roof and actually split our condenser in half. It pushed it, you know, the base held and the top didn't. Um, so we replaced that. I want to say that was like 150. That was good. That was all of 150 just for that component. And when you talk yeah, about just an entire... To, you know, drop-in system for a little over two hundred thousand. By the time it's done, now you start looking at, at the ability to get, you know, a warehouse like you were saying, a warehouse, a, a used building yeah. with, with open floor space, and turn it into a curling rink. So, did you, you guys, did you lease both of these facilities, or did you get ownership so, in them? Um, so the first one we leased. So the first one was the three sheet club with a small warm room. We leased that one. And then the uh, the second one that we moved into in 2019, we're buying under land contract. Okay. On a, it's weird, but it's a 17-year amortization, and we're you know at six years in, five, five six years in, so almost a third of the way uh, paid off. Yeah. Um, but you know, I highly recommend if you can find a way to do something like that. Now we fell into the story on our new facility was. We, uh, you know, the lease was coming up for renewal. We had we had locked in at our first facility uh, three five year periods, 
at our option. So it was a five-year initial period, five-year you know renewal at our option, and then another five-year renewal at our option. And it was pre-negotiated at just the cost of living increase. So they couldn't jack the rent on us and all that sort of stuff. So we were in a pretty good place, but we felt we were growing, you know, five years later, would that be big enough for us? And so we felt to be good stewards, we needed to look around and see what was available. And just so happens that there was a building 200 yards down the street that um, was vacant, not yet on the market, that looked to be perfect for us. So we researched on the tax records who owned it, called the guy up, went in to, you know, asked to see it. We went in to see it and we were like, oh my God, this is awesome. Uh, and I started talking to him. So one of the things that I'm a big proponent of is finding a way for your curling club to be an asset to your community. And because my son uh, has autism and that's the whole reason we got into curling, um, we've run a special needs curling program ever since we had dedicated ice. We actually did stuff before that, but it was, you know, one off events. Yeah. Um, but we've since, you know, when we got our new facility, we applied for a grant from a local local uh, foundation that gave us 20 grand a year to run this, uh, this program for individuals with physical and intellectual disabilities. So I happened to be talking to the guy about that program because I like to spout on and on about it. And it turns out he has a 30-year-old son with autism. Oh, and wow. as, soon as, as soon as he found out we were doing that, he bent over backwards for us. Yeah. So I said, oh, this building is great, but we really don't have the money for a down payment. We hadn't been considered moving. He's like, well, how much money do you have? I'm like, well, we probably only have 10 grand in the bank. He said, uh, so we had negotiated a price of about 525000 for the building. And he says, okay, how about $7,500 down? And I said, hey, your mouth just dropped. You're like, what's the cat? Like, That's great. That's great. But I probably can't get a commercial loan. We just don't have enough of a credit rating and they require financial guarantees that probably nobody's willing to do. So I don't know that I can get at least like, okay, I'll, I'll finance it for you. And wow. I'm like, oh crap, that's great. But, uh, you know, it's going to take us, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to modify this facility and, you know, I, I, it's going to take me some time to, to come up with a plan for those funds and have confidence that we can deliver on it. He's like, how long do you need? I said, well, probably four months. And he's like, okay, I'll wait. So he turned down cash offers in the interim. It ended up taking us five months. And he turned down cash offers in the interim uh, to get us this building. Uh, and solely because, in my mind, we ran a special needs program and, and he had a connection to the special needs community. And the interesting thing is his son now participates in our program when, when he's not doing special needs with special Olympics bowling, he comes and, and plays with, uh, you know, with us on our Sunday afternoon special needs league. Yeah. That worked out great. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's great. Um, I was going to ask, uh, aside from setting up the ice itself and, and making the move like that from, from the arena ice, uh, what other kind of things did you have to to go into as far as making the move from arena to your own club? Did you have to do any work with the city as far as letting them know that where you set up with the city in the first place, like the Parks and Rec Department or anything like that? Or was it kind of just like a private group that decided they wanted so, to switch and keep the club rolling? Yeah, so we were we were never really affiliated with, with Parks and Rec or anything else. So... You know, there's you know, obviously permitting and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, people don't understand a curling facility in, in Indiana. People barely know what curling is. So, you know, educating the inspectors and architects, et cetera, on, on and, you know, having to sprinkle, and you know, over ice is, uh, you know, something that people don't understand, but the codes are not written for a curling facility. So the code says you have to have sprinklers uh, because it's this larger room, uh, even though, you know, 95% of it, 98% of it is ice. Um, you know, you still got to deal with that. So yeah, I was just looking at our club and I was like, God, we don't have sprinklers, do we? No, no, I guess they don't care about us. So. Well, we get dinged by the fire inspector every year. In. We, we get dinged by the fire inspector every year because they come and see like, we'll put a trophy or something in front of the heater and they'll, they'll get mad at us for that. Right. It's always something. Um, so, so no, we didn't really have to do much. Um, you know, the 
we tried to maintain a good relationship with the with the ice rink that we left, which, you know, oddly enough, another weird coincidence um, is directly across the street from our current facility. So we've curled at three different facilities all within 200 yards of one another. Same street. Uh, over yeah. the last 13 years. Uh, and it's in a great area of town where, you know, ice rink, there's a volleyball slash basketball field house there. There's, you know, a bunch of brew pubs very close by. Uh, so we, we got really lucky in, in that regard. We're not hidden. So, We're on a, a main drag with frontage uh, and a bunch of properties. So we got lucky. So what are you setting out now for your current uh, members? How many how many members do you have currently? So, uh, you know, there's really full members is just under 100 when you count rookies and special needs in there. Sure. We're around more than 60 or so which means we've got plenty of capacity, right? So they say capacity is 100 members per sheet. Uh, I disagree with that because I never want to deal with a uh, three-draw night uh, where you've got, you know, a 4.30 draw, you know, a, you know, a 7 o'clock draw and a 9.30 draw. Um, my target is, is to be about 50 members per sheet. So, you know full members. So we're probably at 50% capacity in my mind. And if we get, if we double our membership and get to about 200, we'll have absolutely no challenges making our numbers. Now we're making our numbers, uh, you know, through lots of corporate events and our special needs program and everything else. Um, but, you know, we get up closer to 200 and a lot of our membership and, and bar stuff can can help us make most of our numbers and probably by then we'll be done with our mortgage and things will be easier anyway. Yeah. I was going to say that, uh, having your own concessions you can run, you know, for us, that's a, that's a huge revenue source, you know, our, oh, yeah, our member, our, the fees that our members pay. And I think on average it's like $240 a person, you know, is what it costs to be a member here. And, you know, that's just covering the utilities and the rent, you know, uh, we, we, we'd be insolvent if that was our only income, you know, but another thing exactly. that's struggling about arena clubs, you know, when that bar and, and those guys were great, you know, wanting you to have an event, and, and cross promote and help them help you but uh, it's really tough if you, you don't have any other revenue streams other than the entry fee people pay you know exactly yeah we made no money from, from the bar or the food and then made a boatload of money uh, but we learned a lot and we built a lot of exposure and got you know our members excited about this sort of stuff if we hadn't run those cash spiels uh, or regular bond spiels yeah. it may have enough to, to get people dedicated enough to make the transition to dedicated ice. Yep. yep. Sure. And then for your instructors, like for your special needs program, do, I mean, is that all volunteer? Is everything volunteer? Do you have any, do you have a paid ice tech or somebody that kind of manages the club or? We are a hundred percent volunteer and nobody takes a dime out of it. Um, the, Same the, grant is actually, the grant is actually written to pay 20 bucks to the volunteers for the special needs program. And every one of them donates the money to the club. Yep. All right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, do you guys run any other special programs aside from the special needs? Do you do like a youth curling or anything like that as well? We just started a juniors program, um, you know, back in in October. Uh, it's pretty small, and and the kids are pretty small. It's you know eight to twelve year olds. Um, so we do that. You know, I'd like to get into, you know, we've got a lot of you know when you make, when you make the transition to dedicated ice, you know, ice is a fixed cost, and the more you can utilize the ice, you know, you're generating revenue and with no additional cost. So I'd really like to get a lot more happening in the daytime and get, you know, some senior, a senior league, retiree league going during the day. Yep. Uh, we're just not there yet, just from our membership level and everything else. And that's but, something uh, we've been lacking here too. You know, the Bismarck Club, just to the south of us, an hour and a half, you know, they're great about that stuff. They have daytime programs and weekend programs. And we've always just been Monday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. Um, I started an Air Force League, uh, military league on Tuesdays, you know, that we run. So that's a, another way to, that's how I sold it to the board was actually, I was like, you know, we have the ice here. It's not getting used. Let me take a, a bunch of bros from the Air Force and we'll charge them 10 bucks a night and get some more revenue in. Um, and now we're looking at doing youth curling. So I got to ask with youth curling, um, we decided to run our program with full size rocks. We scribed a house in the middle of the sheet and we went and got these portable hacks. So it's a plate that has four holes in it. And then you sink the plate in the ice. And then uh, when you need it, you go drill it out and drop the hack in on that. So we're going to have the little kids shooting 
I don't know, it's a little bit less than half the distance with full-size rocks. Clay, what ages is that? Eight to 12? It's eight to 12, same, same age group yep. that you're looking um, at. How did you guys run yours? Because we really considered getting youth rocks. I did youth curling in Minnesota, you know, with the dinky little rocks and they'd put a piece of duct tape on your shoe and you'd just go slide around out there. Um, you know, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, uh, wondering what you guys decided and where you ended up out there. Any advice you have? Because this will be our first year in January starting that youth one. Yeah, so we're, we're uh, you know, we wanted to take the low cost approach. So we, early days, we used to, we, we had borrowed some junior rocks from Kalamazoo and had them sitting in the club and never ended up using them. Um, so we're using full-size rocks. Yep. We do have a couple of sheets where, where we have uh, a set of rings in the center. Um, they're, you know, they're just the lines. They're not, uh, you know, they're not colored in. Same thing we did. Um, yep. I'm with you. Yep. <laughs> so we use that, but we're also pushing them to, to go full sheet and not quite there, but they're getting closer, uh, you know, consistently getting rocks in play. So we're, we're, you know, probably stretching them a little bit more than, than perhaps we should, um, by having them go full length, but they seem to be, they're getting it down there, I think, because they're having to push it, which is making them less, uh, less accurate. Yeah. But, but you're not you're not starting them there, right? You're saying they start on the half sheet, you know, they kind of get their form right. down, and then you go, "Hey, kids, you know, you're doing great. Let's try doing this full sheet, you know." And then you move yeah. them over, yeah. So they they have a foundation there. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, one of the things we found that we do now, um, and and we're you know six eight weeks into this, so we're we're ex, we're no experts by any means, but you know we tend to see them uh, slide and then immediately release. Yep. So we've got them doing a long slide competition. So you're not releasing the stone, but you're sliding out with the stone. How far out can you slide? So every day we start, every session, we start off by getting them to just slide as far as they can. Mm -hmm. So they have like it in their that. minds that they should be sliding and then working on releasing and not just releasing as soon as they push out of the hack. I like that. Yeah. That's a good idea. Now, we haven't done like a youth program here, but I've done a number of like events with Boy Scout troops, you know, and usually those are, you know, 10 or older. Um, and I've, I've had that same issue with them letting go right away. You know, it seems like they want to come out and they almost want to go to their knees, you know, and then just let go of the rock right away. And it's like, no, slide. But then when they slide, you know, it's like they want to hang on till it's dead and then they end up pushing again. So, yeah, you keep going back and forth on advice. But right. yeah. But yeah. I think that's a great idea. Get some competition in there just for form as opposed to figuring out, like, mm -hmm. you figure out a trick and can do it e the easy way instead of the right way. Yeah. How do you guys encourage the kids? You know, do you guys uh, just leave it on the parents? Like, you offer the program, the kids come, and you just have excited volunteers. Do you uh, give out prizes for them? You know, do you have other things that you're doing for the kids to keep them engaged? Um, anything happening on the side there? No, not really. I mean, you know, the first few weeks it was, you know, right after a bond spiel. So there was candy out on the table. So that always helps. And yep. I keep meaning to get some more candy and, and bring that. Um, but the kids just really loved it from the start. Uh, you know, it's small. We've got seven kids, four boys, three girls. And everyone that came out to do it has stuck around and they're all excited. And they come every week, just about, uh, you know, around Thanksgiving, we, we had a little downturn with you know some people traveling for fall break and everything yeah. else but the kids absolutely love it so you know we start off focus on the slide um and then like we end every session doing something fun so typically we've been doing shorties oh short house um, where you stand in the hack and just push to the close one exactly yeah yep. we started off doing that and they love it and they're asking can we do the short game can we do shorties yeah uh, and stuff like that so you know, we try to make the last 15, 20 minutes something fun. And, and now we're to the point where we're playing some ends full length. And uh, so, like, uh, let's see, today, we did it today. I missed it. But, uh, you know, it was a smaller group because it was right after Thanksgiving. Um, but, like, the week before, we played two ends. Yeah. So it's a mix of instructional. And at the end, they get a little bit of competition, whether it's shorties, whether it's... Uh, you know, the long, you know, playing the full end or whatever else. Uh, but, you know, we've been really lucky. The kids that we've got, we've had zero behavior issues. The parents are not out there. It's just us and the kids. But the parents are sitting on the other side of the warm room and grandparents are coming and brothers and sisters are there. So they're getting, you know, everybody's watching them. So they like that. And, uh, and the kids do great. We're, I'm really 
happy with how it's gone so far and you know, hopefully we can continue to grow this thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking about starting out the seasons and stuff and, and getting the kids going, it got me thinking about our regular club members, right? So one thing we struggle with every year and, and don't, you know, I, we don't have it figured out by any stretch is how do you get new people into the sport um, and then get them trained up and get them going, you know, and, and take them from an absolute beginner to somewhere they can be comfortable, right? Like it depends on what your goals are. Do you want to be a high performance curler? Do you, is this just a social thing? Do you want to participate and, you know, uh, do the best you can? Um, you know, and how do we do that? And so what we like to try and do is to try to get an experienced person to start with a group of newbies. But that always depends on like, you know, does the group coming in? Do they have a full team already? Are they open to that? Um, try to mentor them. How do you get them up to date on the etiquette? You know, so what do you guys do? I can tell you what we do and it's not a whole lot, right? You know, we, we try to register teams and get good composition for them. And then we try to go through the first week and remind everybody about some of the etiquette stuff. And then we, we try to tell our experienced teams like, hey, if you're playing against somebody new you know do the curling thing and help them learn the game right like if they you know if they're a brand new curler and they commit a faux pas you know like uh, stand in front of you talking while you're trying to call a shot like you know, just politely remind them um but that's always a struggle right because not everybody likes doing that you know and some people don't take it the right way when you're you know joe schmo is out there telling you what to do on the ice you know they think they paid their money and they can come do whatever they want um do you guys have problems with those attitudes what do you do for new curlers do you have rules about it um how are you doing things? Because it seems like you got to figure it out, Craig. Uh, I wouldn't say we haven't figured it out. We, we, we do some <laughs> yeah. things right and some things not right. But, uh, you know, we, we do, uh, you know, we've got a rookie league. So do a learn to curl. You like it. Sort of the next step, not a requirement, but the next step is the rookie league. And that's six weeks of 4M games with our people there as coaches. So they spend six weeks, our people out in the ice room with them, you know, at the first week, we're helping them with, you know, making the calls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, each week they grow a bit more confident and push our people away a little bit. And by the end of the six weeks, they don't even want our people in the room with them, right? Because they yep. think they've got it. No, no they do. They don't have it. I think that would be a good idea. That's something that's definitely doable as we go forward. Because, I mean, what we run into with ours is, is, is just the sheer timing of when we gain access to our facility after the fall. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough time for rookies to commit to a full team right And well, I think that could we could really use that to our advantage going forward. That's as essentially well. how I run my military league. Yeah, too. like your you military. Know, it's just like it, it's just it's me and like one other guy instead of like you know the twelve people I'd love to have you right. know walking around. So um, we've we've got a really good guy that runs our rookie league, and it it starts off. He starts every session with something educational. Now it could just be a short video on your delivery uh one of them's on etiquette uh so it, it's you know 10 minutes of instruction in the warm room before they go out and play so they're learning something before they go out and then they play a forehand game and he does a great job uh making it interesting and entertaining and and keeping those people and then working to transition those people into regular leagues and we also the other thing we do is we highly encourage our rookies uh to get on a sub list and uh, a lot of the rookies get to sub during a regular league and they get it. It's a bit, uh, you know, eye opening for them to to go into our you know competitive league on a Monday night, which, you know, we're a relatively new club. I wouldn't consider us competitive, you know, as compared to some of the clubs that have been around for a long time. But uh, but it's, there's still a big difference between rookie league where the rookies don't know when to call people to sweep. So there's not a lot of sweeping. Uh, versus, you know, going into a competitive league of experienced curlers where they're sweeping a hell of a lot more than they did and they're playing an 8-end game versus a 4-end game and uh, they're seeing a lot, you know, shots that they didn't know were possible happen or at least be tried. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to get them really interested and go, oh, there's a lot more to this that I don't even know about. Uh, so we, we've got a regular sub list that's out in a Google Sheet that people can access and, and they're on our discord that we use for communication and we can just go out and ask them. And, and we love to have rookies, uh, you know, subbing into our league because the more they do that, the more likely they are to join a full league when they're done. And we limit our rookies. You can do two rookie seasons. And then after that, you got to shit or get off the pot and join a regular league or go away because we, we need to have the rookie league be true rookies 
and yep. not have experienced people in there intimidating brand new curlers. Sandbagging. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, how many events do you run, like as far as bond spiels and stuff throughout the throughout the season? So we run typically, I think we just pared it down. It used to be four spiels a year. Uh, now it's kind of, we eliminated the women's spiel because we canceled it more often than we ran it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes sign up, sometimes uh, ice conditions, sometimes uh, the fact that we're moving the facilities and, and COVID and everything else. So, uh, so we run three spiels. We run a September bond spiel. Uh, called End of Summer Spiel, which is as close as we can to the autumnal equinox. And uh, that that one's always really popular because it's before most clubs have ice. Um, so that one always sells out, and that's a 32-team spiel. Uh, then we have one in November that started off as a men's. It went to a cash spiel, and we really struggled to fill it in, when it was both a men's and a cash spiel. And then uh, we found uh, making it a five and under generated a lot of interest. So, so on the calendar, oh, go ahead. It quali- it's a qualifying event for five and under nationals the last three years. And, you know, we, we, we sell it out pretty well. And then we run a spring spiel. And that one, you know, people have used up a lot of their vacation days. And there's a lot of competition for spiels in our area. And there's a lot of other clubs. So we found making that one a two-day spiel. Um, limited to 24 teams is is easier for us for a variety of reasons. That sounds good. What are you seeing as a approximate payout for your cash spiels? I mean, do they become quite competitive in the end, or is it is it more so or less another bond spiel? Run, yeah, we're not running cash spiels anymore. We oh. did that at the arena, but we haven't been doing it since we moved to dedicated ice in 2014. Well, I guess we did the man Anthony. We did a few years as a cash spiel. Sure. Thing. And November one. And that was, I think the total pot was seven grand or something like that. I can't remember. That, that's Five respectful. Seven grand. Um, uh, but, yeah, we haven't run that one since 2017, I think. I'm sure. As a cash bill, maybe 2018 was the last I, year. I remember when we, we interviewed uh, Mark, one of our... our our members has been around forever and I know we kind of shied away from cash spiels a while back just because it was so difficult for new curlers to, to get into those because everybody was bringing in the veterans each time, but it, it does kind of depend on. Yeah. And we, we, our philosophy here with our bond spiels is, you know, we don't run really overly competitive ones. We get good teams, right? Um, but that's not the whole point of it. So usually, you know, like our big one, our end of year, our shirt sleeve, there's a, a steak dinner at it. You know, Saturday night we do a steak dinner. We do free pizza and, you know, a pitcher of beer Friday night to keep teams broom stacking. And we have live music too. We bring in a band, you know, so um, and we're not giving out cash prizes. We need to get prizes donated. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we wouldn't make any money, but uh, exactly. you know, after you get the band and, and people stay, you know, and you get the concessions, uh, uh, we've gotten close to ten thousand dollars. We've taken off of them, you know, and then you spend yep. a couple thousand on your expenses and you know move on. So yeah, they're good. I I like the fun ones, the social ones. Yeah. And when do you guys so have? Run, oh, sorry, go ahead. So we run those those now three bond spiels a year. Uh, we also have a bunch of challenge cups, one day challenge cups against local clubs. So Indy, Kalamazoo, Lansing, uh, Troy, and Bowling Green, we've got challenge cups. We, we don't get them all in every year, but uh, so like with Indy, we've got what's called the Hoosier Cup, the Indiana State Curling Championship. And we'll, you know, it's home, it's, you know, home one year away the next year, yeah. uh, et cetera. So we've got those and then like this year, so we've, we've run a bunch of uh, nationals. So 2013, when we were still arena, we ran the inaugural arena national uh, curling championships for USA Curling. And then we hosted U18 nationals uh, two years ago. And then this, in January, we're hosting wheelchair mixed doubles nationals. So we do some of that and we get grant money from our Convention and Visitors Bureau and some other sporting organizations, which generates a bit of revenue for us as well. To clarify, you said next year you're hosting the Para um, Nationals? 
uh, in a month. So in a month. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, January fourth through seventh and twenty-four, we're hosting wheelchair mixed doubles nationals. Oh, okay. Uh, I say we're. Uh, I'm. I'm trying to start a, a para program this year. So we just right. got the uh, local group um, involved, and we picked dates in January. And at the meeting, he had said he's like, well, you know, maybe in a couple of years, you know, I, I could be going to the Paralympics for this because it's a Paralympic absolutely. sport. And I was like, I would just be tickled pink if that came true. <laughs> Is that so, uh, strictly wheelchair now? Strictly wheelchair, yeah. Strictly wheelchair, okay. Because okay. that was one thing that we were trying to figure out because then we have Prairie Good local program, but there's mixed um, Ability physical abilities. Yeah. So, I mean, there's yep. a fair amount of guys that can walk just fine right. and some some are wheelchairs so we're trying to figure out the best way to go about that yeah and we had contemplated different things like you know either having extra wheelchairs available or having like a mat we could put out for them to stand on you know to push from around the hog line you know instead of being seated doing it from a, right. a standing position out there so and, and we haven't figured it all out yet no. um, but to, so. i'm honest honestly to conform with the paralympic program right now in wheelchairs it might just be easier to do it strictly wheelchair yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of that depends what they want to do too. Yeah, you know, we'll see what they're interested yeah. in. So, um, well, what else do we got here, guys? Well, I think we're over fifty minutes. I don't know what kind of time Craig has got over there. The last couple of questions I had. You mentioned the end of summer spiel. You said it fills up quick. Is there a way to get on a waiting list for that? Because I'm kind of interested in rolling down to Indiana <laughs> yeah. and maybe yeah, curling. Be fun. Yeah. yeah. So we open up registration on May first of each year, and it typically fills up within three days sometimes like the first year it was pretty quick but last time it was about three days so set a set a reminder on your calendar may first, just yeah. right, right now yep i am on may 1st and it's uh you know i'm not sure the exact dates that it'll be this coming year but let me look probably probably the 20th through 22nd of september is when it'll be because it'll be right over the autumnal equinox. Perfect. Yeah. That's that'd definitely be something I'm interested in. I got three, maybe two other guys here with me that might come down and curl. So maybe we'll see you there. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> love to host you and can, can show you around the facility and talk to you about the construction process and all of that sort of stuff. And commiserate about what it's like being on the uh, uh, back end of a curling curling club. Oh, There's the, a lot to go exactly, into. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. fun parts yeah. of being on the that, I mean, that's... That's what the other thing I tell people is it, it's difficult to build a dedicated curling facility. It's equally difficult to run one. Mm-hmm. They do uh, have some momentum behind them, too, which I like, you know, coming in, uh, you're full of uh, fire and you, you want to get things done. And then reality sets in. But, you know, uh, everybody keeps each other moving. I really yep. love our club. And yeah, a little bit of an Olympic kickstart. And then an, if you can keep the momentum going and not have a COVID in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, exactly. yeah. I love that you mentioned the Olympic um push too because like we observed that phenomenon as well and like uh during the last cycle you know we had a specific like olympic oh i wanted to say this to you too talking about one-off events you know we did a what we call them fun spiels where it's a learn to curl in the morning so we do them on like a saturday 10 to noon you do a learn to curl and then at noon you uh have like a pickup tournament so you don't let like people come in and, and bring their own you know ringer team you break them up and have people register and then you make teams and then you have them go out and play like a modified scoring four end games and curl three oh, cool. Serve them lunch and then uh, you know give them a fabulous prize. So we usually do like beer mugs or something or T-shirts and send them home. And that's a good way for us to get people in who like you know aren't going to commit to a full league but want to come try the sport. And so you get them at a fun spiel, they like it, try it, and then maybe next year you can get them to register. So we have good luck with the fun spiels. Yep, yep. So what we do is we do what we call a mixer spiel. So near the end of the year. Um, we'll, we'll play our rookies, two rookies and two experienced members on a team. Yep. Um, so it gives the rookies, you know, something to do, a little more exposure to more, more advanced curling and mm-hmm. hopefully gets them excited about coming back in the fall because that's always the challenge, right? You get these rookies in, they have a good time, and then the summer happens and, you know, they're not as keen on curling as, as we are and they forget about it and make other plans and getting them back is always is always, you know, a little bit of a challenge. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things we do. Yeah. Okay. The other thing. Oh, yeah. um, And now it's not coming to me. So I lost my train of thought there. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, we certainly don't have everything figured out. We've done some things right. And, you know, there's uh, things that we need to do better. Certainly volunteers are always a challenge, getting more people actively engaged. 
mm -hmm. and, and doing things. So it's not the same small group of people doing everything, cleaning the toilets and running spiels and everything else. But, uh, yep. you know, I think we've got a bright future ahead. And if we can just avoid another pandemic, uh, <laughs> we'll be in, we'll be in great shape. Yeah. yeah we'll yeah. keep our fingers crossed on that one up here too. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Craig, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for taking the time and, and talking with us. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I feel like I got a lot out of it. And honestly, um, hearing about how far you guys have come in such a short amount of time, it's it's fairly inspiring and kind of makes me feel like I can go do some more, you know, too. Um, I did want to say also, you know, in the spirit of curling, um, I, I really do hope we can make it out to your guys' Bondsville. I'd love to see your guys' facility. And, uh, you know, we have, have events over here, too. If anybody ever decides they want to head out to the plains in the middle of the winter, um, come join us in Minot. You know, we'd love to see you guys. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't, I've been to Bismarck and Fargo, but I've never made it to Minot. So uh, let's, let's see what we can make happen at some point in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. You sounds good. Else? Yeah. Thank you very much, Craig. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Yeah. Okay. Bye now. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Oh, it was fun. It was fun to hear about a club in Indiana of all states. I wouldn't have expected it. To. Yeah. It, it is crazy just to think about, I mean, looking at how many teams they managed and then seeing the population base, I think we're starting to see one of the, uh, one of the main challenges we have out here. Population. There isn't that much. It's there isn't so, enough people to, to start up that quickly. I mean. The ratio is so backwards from us because we have over 200 club members, almost 300 if you count right. my military Proportionally, guys. Proportionally, we're doing subs, great. But <laughs> um, but then we go to have a bond spiel and it's like, well, God, we got 20 teams. We did all right. You know? We got 80 people curling, but we had a 40 team bond spiel. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. a good ratio, you know? And it's proximity to other clubs willing to, to, to travel. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are kind of out alone here unfortunately so. yeah we're 12 hours from the twin cities and four from fargo and yeah you're not pulling from from huge numbers in right, those places right. so well even just the programs they run out there too though like with their club like the special needs mm -hmm. program and stuff like that. that's awesome to see see what they're doing yeah. to it's cool that they had such a close tie with like USCA. It seemed like right from the get go because yeah. they were hosting like their club's been around for three years and they're hosting a USCA you know nationals he, he, tournament. That's fantastic. I forgot the guy's name. He said, but they they did have somebody on their on their um on their board that had very close ties as well that mm -hmm. helped out. Yep, which which should be very helpful. Yeah. Well, on location based, I imagine they're a little bit more apt to have something a little more centralized than. Yeah, things are just seems like closer together out east. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. You can't watch your dog run away for three days out there. I was just, just going to say that. Oh, that's awesome. I, that's great. Uh, We've been doing this too long yeah. that we're starting to think and say the same things. That's so funny. Um, yeah. No, anything else you guys want to touch on? Like, like I said, it was just a great conversation. No, was, I'm going to have to be mulling it over here for the next few days. I know I'm going over what he said and seeing if I could take away anything for, for how we run stuff. I do like the, rec the rookie league idea. I think there might be some potential in that in the yeah, future. my only nights. question there now is we've got all five weekday nights tied up. If we add something, that'll be a weekend program. And we actually have youth curling on weekends already. So we're our schedule's getting fuller. It's yeah, great. we yeah, we'll have to figure out what we can squeeze in there, yeah. whether or not it's Fridays or, or, or Saturdays or what we want to do if Saturdays are tough. I completely forgot to ask him about their corporate events. He mentioned that. I saw on their website, too. I think they have like a $1,000 minimum for their corporate rentals, and which uh, <laughs> just, just came up with us. I think ours is still 250 you know? <laughs> yeah. We should, and I, every club I go look at, they all seem to be getting near four digits for their minimums for corporate ones, like non-member rentals. They had a member rate, too, that was substantially cheaper. Yeah, um, I think we need to go through because we have a, a negligible member rate and our outside rental rate i don't even remember what it is now yeah, so. 250 minimum yeah. and then it's like 15 bucks a head as long as they don't want anything crazy that's like a three hour rental you know it's like you get 15 people three hours 250 it gets you a learn to curl half an hour of whatever you want and then you know an hour social but, yeah no that was great um i guess if craig is listening to this uh, uh thank you so much again for joining us i i really enjoyed that interview yeah, that was, that was great. Uh, but for now, if you guys don't have anything else, no. that's been Between Two Sheets. Bye.